Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about a couple of lawsuits against Councilman Jose Huizar, a very concerning story about a potential planning department power grab, another NIMBY lawsuit that is aimed at stopping the city's plans around the expo line, and a bit of uplifting news around a pilot program for accessory dwelling units as housing for the homeless being run at the county level. How's it going, Bushido? Eh, it's going pretty well, man. You know, it's been a long week. Yes, it has. Getting ready to vote. <laughs> Good. All right, let's hop into this because this is all kind of crazy. So let's start off with Jose Wezar, who cannot go more than a week without catching a lawsuit. It, yeah. So this is uh, all uh, a lot of breaking news going on here very recently out of his office. So over the course of the last two weeks, Jose Wezar's former staffers have sued the city twice. The first is uh, Maya Alvarez, who left Jose's office in July. She's claiming that she was demoted and had her responsibilities scaled back after she complained that staffers had been assigned to work during city hours uh, on the upcoming council campaign for Jose Huizar's wife, Rochelle. Uh, so this is important because they're uh, in the lawsuit, they say, quote, quote, Despite local, state, and federal laws prohibiting government employees from engaging in political activity on the job, Huizar required his city staffers to conduct meetings in order to plan Rochelle Huizar's campaign. Those meetings were formally calendared and occurred during normal city work hours and within city properties. And this is going to be really important because Rochelle is running for Jose's seat in 2020. And uh, the campaign she's running is basically trading off of his name. Oh, very much so. Like like we've mentioned before, the the flyers and banners and everything for her campaign very prominently feature the name Huizar with Rochelle just up in the top corner. And they've also had a shift from his office uh, in the last couple of years where they've moved to a hashtag of Team Huizar instead of having anything to do with his first name. Yeah, and she, from what I know, she doesn't have any... Um, political experience, right? I mean, she's been sitting on a number of boards for the last few years and uh, does have a position within the city um, for their housing and community improvement uh, group. But uh, no, she does not have uh, any formal uh, experience within the city council. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, Huizar is claiming that these lawsuits are a political hit, specifically this first one, um, although he does make the same claim against the second one in the reporting that happened later, mm -hmm. uh, that, and that these are targeting his wife's campaign. In a statement that he released in response to this first suit, he says, quote, I find it suspicious that these claims have surfaced now when my wife has announced her candidacy for my seat. This further supports that this is politics at its worst, end quote. Yeah, that's kind of weird because like, when else would they come out with campaign finance exactly. violations if somebody's not <laughs> running? Like, if, if Rochelle Weezer never runs for office, then you can't allege campaign finance violations. Exactly. So um, that's exactly the point with uh, why this is such a bizarre statement and when, approach from him to take. When it also seems like incredibly tone deaf because this was the same kind of like stupid line that people used to defend Kavanaugh. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these accusations came out just before he's given an incredible <laughs> amount of power. And it's like, that's yeah, that's when generally those yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Uh, the suit is also alleging that Alvarez was instructed to modify Huizar's 2015 and 2016 appointment calendars in order to hide his meetings with developers and lobbyists. The calendar modifications were actually tied into a California Public Records Act request from the Los Angeles Times for that information. Alvarez claims that she quote-unquote chafed at the instructions, but also claims that she was pressured by the councilman to make the alterations and then instructed to delete all emails relating to the modifications after the fact. I mean, he does understand how servers... That's extremely illegal. <laughs> well, not only that, but like, 
those oh, yeah. emails are still backed up in cache. Yep. Like de- deleting them out of your Gmail doesn't actually make them go away forever. Details. Yeah. So she's also claiming that uh, she was punished for taking maternity leave and disability leave. Uh, and she's alleging that she and other staffers were frequently tasked with non-governmental tasks, such as picking up his dry cleaning, taking his kids to school, and going to his Boyle Heights home to, quote, let his dog out to poop. Yeah, and those allegations surface in the the second lawsuit as well, which kind of like raises a lot of questions as to how Jose Weizar has been running his office. Uh, yeah, everyone apparently is his personal staff rather than his professional staff. Yeah. Uh, so finally, Alvarez is also alleging that Huizar was having an affair with another staffer, not Francine Godoy, who was his former deputy chief of staff and sued him for sexual harassment in 2013, a suit which was also settled out of court privately. Uh, Alvarez is claiming that she, quote, believed that Huizar's mistress received more favorable treatment from him with respect to assignments and more leniency with respect to deadlines and attendance. Yeah, I mean, this just sort of plays into the whole stereotype of men in power being terrible, and also the fact that, like, he's (laughs) been doing this since 2013 and apparently not stopped. Exactly. So, on Halloween, news of a second lawsuit broke. Uh, This suit is alleging discrimination, harassment, and wrongful termination, which was filed on behalf of Pauline Medina, who left Huizar's office on June 20th, which, coincidentally, possibly, was the same day that a complaint against Huizar was filed with the mayor's new My Voice LA tool, uh, which is is a tool for reporting harassment at City Hall. It's unclear whether Medina was the one who filed that complaint. Uh, in her lawsuit, Medina... And there's also, from the same reporting yeah. on uh, the Alvarez lawsuit, uh-huh. there's, uh, I think it's being investigated by a five-person investigative yes, committee. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what the, the, My, Voice, the My Voice LA uh, tool has triggered a, an investigation on of a five-person committee made up of, like, two former judges and two mm-hmm. lawyers, uh, as well as uh, some other official of some sort. Um, but it's split, like, half of them are men, half of them are women. I forget who the fifth person mm-hmm. is. Um but yeah, it's it's this this formal investigation process, formally formal investigative process rather, uh, has only been triggered like three or four times in its ever since it was created, and now two of those are for Jose Huizar. Wow. All uh, right. So let, let's move on to the Medina lawsuit. Sorry it, to sidetrack No you. problem. So in this lawsuit, Medina is alleging that a campaign to push her out started in 2017 after she told Huizar's chief of staff that the councilman was having an affair with one of his staffers. Uh, the suit makes the same kinds of allegations, as we mentioned before, um, that... Uh, was were in Alvarez's suit, and adding that the staff was often sent to Boyle Heights to move uh, Jose's wife Rochelle's car uh, on street sweeping days to avoid parking tickets, something that everyone in L.A. can relate to. That's amazing. Um, however, most people can't relate to having staff to go and handle that for you, so... Eh. Medina, uh, who had been an office manager for Huizar, claims that she became uncomfortable with some of Huizar's activities, which included using city funds to pay for golf tournaments and other gala events. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, it keeps getting better. Uh, She also alleges that staffers had been required to, quote, engage in fundraising activities for Bishop Morris Salesian High School, which is in Boyle Heights and happens to be Jose Huizar's alma mater. Uh, And again, these... This campaign, uh, sorry, this fundraising was happening during city work hours. Gosh, it's almost like having 15 very unaccountable people running the city is a terrible (laughs) idea. It's almost like they have so much power and their districts are so gigantic that nobody can really keep tabs on them. Yeah, just wait, it gets worse. Uh, So Jose Huizar hired Medina back in 2008, um, and she also happens to have a son with one of Huizar's brothers. 
apparently the relationship between Medina and Huizar's brother ended in 2012, um, but it was currently active at the time that she was hired and apparently played a role in that hiring decision. Um, in response to this second lawsuit, Huizar responded with a statement that, quote, this lawsuit is full of misrepresentations and I deny all these crazy allegations. This is nothing more than a coordinated political attack by individuals who share the same attorney and have a vested interest in denigrating my name and supporting certain political opportunists. Hmm. He didn't actually mention who any of those alleged political opportunists were. So, yeah. I mean, it's also one where, like, if you're, if you've got an attorney who's listened to everything you have to say and they feel that your allegations are credible enough to file them in a court of law, <laughs> then, like, trying to dismiss them as Twice. crazy. <laughs> yeah, trying to dismiss them as crazy doesn't really, like, help a lot. No. Um, it also, you know, the fact that the allegations are almost the same points mm-hmm. to the fact that, like, he's been doing the same stuff, and I have a feeling that if his wife's campaign does get farther off the ground, we're just going to hear more and more about this. Oh, yeah, this seems to be the first of potentially many stories coming out of the woodwork um, about Jose Huizar. And as we mentioned before, we've not really seen much of a Me Too uh, you know, reckoning at City Hall as yet, but we might be seeing that happening right now. Yeah, and it's it's also going to be an interesting one because Huizar sits on some very important committees, yes. and obviously as a city councilman, he's one of 15 people who have a voice in how the city is run. Yeah, exactly. So these these lawsuits are particularly important given the impact that they could end up having on Rochelle Huizar's 2020 ambitions, but they also mean that we're looking at potentially two vacancies at city council in the coming year because Mitch Englander is already going to be leaving for sure. And if these lawsuits really do have traction and have the merit that they seem to have, then Huizar could end up resigning as a result. Um, and he, as you mentioned, is the head of the Planning and Land Use Management Committee, which is also highly relevant given news surrounding a potential power grab going on in that area. Well, I, I was going to say also just on Rochelle's campaign, it seems like Jose's plan for up until 2020 was to basically, you know, uh, double bill his offices, both oh, the campaign sure. staff and mm-hmm. his city staff, um, which seems like a really dangerous thing to do, but it also raises questions as to like, if he resigns, he'll lose all the resources to mm-hmm. run his wife's campaign. So it seems like the smart thing to do would be to resign and get out while you're clean. But if he does that, then he's going to undercut his wife's campaign, which literally no one sees it as her campaign. No. Everyone sees it as the Weezars yeah, running exactly. together. And Jose basically, I don't mean to diminish his wife, Rochelle's agency, but like, I don't think a lot of people are seriously taking her serious. They see her as an extension of Jose Weezar. Um, I don't know what happened once she gets elected, but at the same time, I think he's assuming there's a lot more goodwill in the city for him than yeah. he actually's got. Yeah, it seems to be drying up real quick for him. I, I will say, though, uh, he did help us out at Occupy Ice LA when uh, LAPD wanted to steal our porta potty, and he, he, <laughs> he put in a call and stopped them from doing that. So I will at well, least give cool. him some points there. Uh, but let's turn away from scandals to uh, this planning and land use changes that are coming through. So this is a super technocratic story. And this is going to get like deep into the wonkery. Yeah, but so let's apologize for that up front. Yeah, to set it up. So basically a couple weeks ago, a 900-page, 900-page staff report was dropped by the staff at, at City Hall, uh, basically explaining changes they want to make to the planning and land use commissions and zoning laws. And basically who gets to decide what goes where and how that gets decided and how much public input that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's being pushed by very 
pro-YIMBY groups as just a little bureaucratic change that's not really going to affect things across the city. Uh, tenants' rights groups and housing advocacy groups are seeing this as a much more dire attack on the way that we democratically deal with planning and land use. Uh, but let's dig into this and get ready, folks. Like, this is going to be super <laughs> important stuff, but it's really, really boring. Like, if you've ever seen the movie Hypernormalization, the biggest problem we have with fixing our world is the mechanisms of power that actually control it are hidden in plain sight, and they're really, really boring. Like, yep. it's not exciting to look at this stuff, but this is what is going to shape how our city looks in 50 years. Absolutely. So uh, a good place to start for anybody who's interested is that there's a newsletter from the, the 2018 edition of the newsletter that came out of the United Neighborhoods for Los Angeles. Uh, it goes into some detail about this, so it's worth checking out. The article is claiming that, quote, City Hall has finally figured out how to cut you out of the planning process. They finally found a way to make sure you don't have a voice in decisions about your community's future. End quote. Basically, what's going on here is that the first stage of the Recode LA, which is a comprehensive revision of the city's zoning code, is moving forward as we speak. That first stage is called the Processes and Procedures Ordinance, and it's going to be adding a new chapter to the city's municipal code, which would dr could dramatically shift power away from elected officials and into the Department of City Planning. The main concern is surrounding a modification of LA City's charter, uh, which currently vests all legislative power in the city uh, to city council. Um, basically, except uh, things that are explicitly provided in the charter, mm -hmm. uh, power over planning and zoning uh, and everything else is devolved to the city council. So under the quote-unquote general authority section, the new language would be stating that, quote, the city council generally exercises all legislative authority associated with the zoning code, except where otherwise provided by the charter, state law, or the zoning code. Okay, in English. Okay, so what's really going on here is that that inclusion of state law and zoning code is really what's uh, triggering all these alarm bells for folks. Um, it is in being interpreted as ceding authority over the zoning code to the zoning code, um, or also to legislation coming out of Sacramento, like what Scott Weiner did with the SB 27 that we discussed so much earlier this year. Um, what is being told to everyone here is that uh, the city is not actually going to be ceding any of, or the city council is not going to be ceding any of that kind of control uh, to the zoning uh, board, or the, sorry, to the zoning department. Um, but uh, activists are concerned about that because that language is very vague and very broad in terms of how it can be interpreted. Uh, apparently, it's not meant to be that way, and the city's attorney is supposed to be looking into making sure that it is never able to be interpreted as such. Um, the majority of the other changes, as you mentioned, Bushido, uh, are being sold as this administrative streamlining process intended to unify the varying workflows for uh, variances, uh, DIR approvals, subdivisions, and all these other things that are extremely technical and involve a lot of different uh, unique processes for each one. And, and also stuff that we're uh, looking at being changed under SB 827, right? Correct. Like we're trading a lot of the same ground. There. Yeah, a lot of these things are all related. And so the idea here is that you would unify it into a single type of process so that there's uh, not it's not as confusing for everyone to navigate because mm -hmm. um, right now they all have different appeal timelines, different notification processes, all of these things. Uh, there's concern, however, that this 
the uh, activists are worried about notification procedures for planning approvals that could change where occupants of properties may not necessarily be included in that notification process in the future. Uh, In that case, the proposed changes would be significantly more impactful coming out of this 900-page report than simply being an administrative streamlining process. So uh, at Wednesday's planning and land use meeting um, this week, uh, the committee approved a new CEQA regulation that means that the any CEQA lawsuit that's going to be brought needs to be filed within 15 days of a project being approved, and now that fee can go up to be around $500. So that is concerning because it means that there's given that there's not any real centralized place that says, hey, these are the new plans that are being approved by the city, the activists who are concerned about what's going on with developers in their neighborhoods will have to be like super, super on top of these developments moving forward and have the lawyers ready to file sequel protests uh, immediately because they've only got three weeks of timeline. Uh, well, and it's also one where like the sequel complaints are used by both sides of the spectrum, like absolutely. by housing advocates as well as like by NIMBYs. The, mm-hmm. the NIMBY groups are way more well-funded, way mm-hmm. more well-lawyered up. Uh, folks like Doug Haynes routinely pull down like a million dollar, you know, basically payoffs from developers. Absolutely. You don't really see that from like the Preserve LA Coalition or uh, like the LA Tenants Union or other like activist groups that might be filing secret complaints or attempting to stop new developments because they think that they'll, you know, displace people in the neighborhood. Um, and it seems like this is going to punish the housing activists. It's not going to punish it, punish the NIMBY group. For sure. Yeah, because there was like, there's, uh, I, I know out here, uh, Doug Haynes and his group pulled down $950,000 for uh, street renovations and the like, street planning mm-hmm. around the new mall that they're putting in Hollywood. But there was also like a quarter million dollars that just went to his basically dark money group that's like him and a couple of lawyers, the La Mirada Neighborhood Association, mm-hmm. which exists on La Mirada Street in name only and is literally just like <laughs> four guys with law degrees who send nuisance letters and right. extract payments from developers. Yeah. So this is, it's very concerning because, uh, you know, with capital resides power and yeah. the people that have the capital and the power are the NIMBY groups and the people who want to, you know, keep everything as the the single family homes and push the, for the development in areas that are outside of their specific neighborhoods because that keeps things the same for them and mm-hmm. means that they can make more money off of everybody else. Now, the city and the state have been pushing for more incentives and also more incentives for affordable housing and punishment for Absolutely. developers who don't build affordable housing. Yes. Is this going to affect that? Uh, so there is concern that's also going on with the zoning uh, group and the planning and land use management committee because uh, there's discussion about modifications to the Warner specific plan where they're looking to potentially exclude development linkage fees and also the transit related JJJ bonuses. Uh, Builders up in the valley have constructed 2,000 units in recent years and none of that construction actually qualifies as affordable. Um, But the Builders Association is claiming that the new linkage fees and the JJJ requirements will actually make it so that any new development is unaffordable for them. So they would not be building anything on anything new unless the planning department removes any inclusionary requirements. Given that they haven't built any affordable units that would take advantage of the parking reductions or density bonuses available through JJJ up to this point, it seems like a very strange demand. And they also have an out where if a developer can prove that uh, including affordable units will mm-hmm. hurt their bottom line, like will make them lose money on the project, mm-hmm. they can get out of that stuff. Absolutely. So these demands, when you 
couple them together with what's being recommended in this process and procedures ordinance, these changes really mean that we're in for potentially a huge displacement push going on in the valley and in the rest of the city. Okay. Uh, and is there any timeline on when the city might be approving this? Because I know it's like it's a 900-page report. It's moving fairly quickly for something of this magnitude. Yeah. So there's discussions that it could be brought to the Planning and Land Use uh, Management Committee within the next few weeks. So we're going to really have to keep our eyes out on that. And let's game this out a little bit because we know Herb Wesson is uh, eyeing the mayor's seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would give the mayor a lot more power because he's more directly in control of like that technocratic bureaucracy that is like the, the staff positions in City Hall. So city council could possibly be cutting itself out altogether? Yeah, it's an interesting potential development where the real concern from community activists is that the bureaucrats and the technocrats who would be making these decisions are not really accountable to the public in any meaningful way. They don't have to run for re-election. They don't have to answer to anybody. They just get to do what they're told to do or what their department decides to do without really having to you know, answer to the public in any meaningful way. Um, this also would potentially be pushing more power into the mayor's office uh, through his ability to control what goes through uh, the zoning uh, board. Mm-hmm. So if Herb Wesson is going to be running for mayor in the coming years, this could mean potentially ceding some of the power uh, over what gets built here in L.A. from city council's hands and into the mayor's hands. And to, to sort of cap this off with one last point of discussion, think about this in terms of the Olympics. Like the ostensibly Los Angeles is hosting the Olympics by 2028. Now they're being built as a no-build Olympics, which is absolute <laughs> BS. They're going to be building hotels. They're going to be building new condos because like L.A. will be a new uh, world-class flagship city. There's going to be a lot of uh, planning and land use issues coming up in that. There's going to be a lot of demand from developers, from investors, from city council members who want to like wet their beak as far as like what we're going to be building. So potentially giving the mayor a lot more power to like allow stuff to be built while we're building up for the Olympics in 10 years seems to raise a whole bunch of problems about what a lot of the neighborhoods around the Olympic Village, downtown, uh, the nicer parts of L.A. are going to look like in 10 years if developers are able to just go to the mayor's office and get their approvals Mm -hmm. and be able to avoid city council meetings or contentious planning and land use meetings and basically cut out activists and community groups altogether. Like that's the part that really scares me is we could suddenly see entire neighborhoods renovated and have no ability to stop that or put political pressure on anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. It is very concerning. So So, speaking of things being uh, slowed down, um, the expo plan has some issues that have been brought up recently, uh, mainly from this group called Fix the City. So they filed a lawsuit against the city uh, claiming that they had failed to properly assess and fix the West LA's, quote, overburdened and inadequate infrastructure prior to approving the Expo Line Density Plan. According to reporting from the LA Times, the suit claims that in court filings and in the blueprint that governs citywide development decisions, Los Angeles officials made a quote-unquote binding commitment to ensure that streets, sidewalks, and public services are adequate before allowing further growth. The density plan would allow for the construction of up to 6,000 new apartments and condominium units, as well as taller office buildings that could bring up to 14,300 more jobs, all happening within a half mile of five of these Metro Expo Line stations, all on LA's west side. And if you live on the west side, you know there's already a ton of construction going on. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the plan is also calling for these taller office towers and apartment buildings and other developments all along Olympic, Venice, and other major streets between Culver City and Centinella Avenue. And again, it all falls within a half mile of metro stations. The new zoning rules would also decrease setbacks, setback requirements, bringing the taller structures closer to the sidewalk and pushing 
adding parking to the rear of the new buildings. All of this is really intended to create a more inviting, pedestrian-friendly environment, which personally I think is very cool. Mm -hmm. But the lawsuit from Fix the City is alleging that the city has quote-unquote kicked the infrastructure can down the road and right into a pothole. Some very fun language there. They're claiming that in addition to broken sidewalks and rutted streets, the area is already facing some of the slowest emergency response times in the city. Uh, The city actually did not really have a response to that because they were not clear as to what the methodology was that Fix the City is using to make that claim. Yeah. So when you look at it, the fix the claims from the Fix the City are really pretty counterintuitive, given that what this plan is doing is pushing for an increase in density of housing and offices next to transit, all in an effort to reduce traffic con- congestion uh, and encourage workers to and residents to use alternative modes of transportation to cars for their commute. Um, but they're claiming that by increasing this density, they're going to increase traffic. It really is, it doesn't make sense when you talk to people in urban planning and uh, development pro, uh, spheres because uh, having access to alternative modes of transportation is really the only way that you get people to stop driving places. Um, it's also worth noting that the same group uh, just sued over development of a, uh, or has sued in the past, over development of a 229-unit Frank Gehry design project here in Hollywood. Um dropping the suit only after reaching a settlement with the developer. Uh, And they've also sued the city back in 2015 over its 20-year transportation plan, which was called Mobility Plan 2035, claiming perversely that creating bus-only lanes and more cycling infrastructure would somehow increase air pollution rather than reducing it. And I I, got to point out, like, Fix the City already has a pretty, like, tortured history. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been sued by another NIMBY association uh, (laughs) called uh, Tract 7260, also known as Century Glen, which is a Westside Homeowners Association over the Westfield Mall. Uh, basically, they sued saying taking away free parking at the Westfield Mall means that all those people are going to park in the neighborhoods, which if you've ever been to that neighborhood, there's no place to park there. Like just <laughs> south of it is a whole bunch of like high rise towers in Century City and just north of it is a bunch of like permit only neighborhood parking. Uh, but anyway, so the the. <laughs> million payout went to fix the city. So NIMBY Group tracked 7260 slash Century Glen sued them saying that the wrong NIMBY Group got a $3 million payout for suing over parking. They're not going to be affected by or use. It's just like this is the thing about the planning and land use uh, issue we were talking about earlier with the sequel like Mm -hmm. complaints and fixing that that process. That would be a really good thing if we could stop NIMBYs like this from filing nuisance lawsuits and use it for actually protecting the environment. But right now, CEQA seems to be supremely weaponized by these groups. And they seem to be like, if not able to stop development, they Mm -hmm. seem to get a payout and they seem to slow it down long enough that it becomes a real pain in the butt. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen stuff like that with the the target here, the, the corpse of a target here in Hollywood that has been stalled for how many years now? Uh, since 2013, I want to say. Yeah, it's going on five years. <laughs> that yeah. thing has been standing there for a long time. Yeah, and that the sidewalk next to it is still closed by the city. They're not, they don't seem to plan to open up that sidewalk, which is technically public space, and yeah. that developer is just, you know, sitting there blocking a sidewalk because And we reasons. wonder why it is that everybody has to drive everywhere in L.A. It's almost like you can't walk. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of ridiculous. So I, I will keep in line. We'll keep up to date with this one, especially along the expo line, um, it, and especially it's a weird one because the neighborhoods that are going to be affected by this uh, aren't really the neighborhoods that are at threat of gentrification. Like that's already happening. Like yeah. just north of Baldwin Hills, the neighborhood I used to live in. 
housing prices are going way up. There isn't a lot of density housing there because of the exclusionary zoning. Mm -hmm. But you move farther west down the line and you suddenly see a lot of gigantic uh, like condo and mixed use developments going up, mm-hmm. but those aren't really gentrifying neighborhoods. Like those are already pretty wealthy West Side middle yeah. class neighborhoods. So, I'm very confused as to what the ultimate aim of this is. Uh, which I think it is just to extract money from developers. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a bunch of rich guys who have realized that they can just have other rich people pay them to go away. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't like that. It angers no, me. No, it's 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 very disruptive. And you know, when we're looking at areas that have our that when it's an already developed and wealthy neighborhood having it increase in density doesn't hurt anyone all it does is apparently ruins some people's views of what they could see before but although if you're living in a single family home you really don't have much in the terms of views anyways so. yeah well and, and if you want to complain about west side traffic like you know <laughs> apartment towers that are very close to trains and buses would really kind of fix that oh, yeah. um, or at least be a good solution to that uh, but so to, to switch over to our last topic yes. now that's actually going to get people housed yeah so well, like, yeah six people but yeah well still <laughs> still it's a it's a, a a small step in the right direction but uh granny flats as they're called or you know like the sort of semi-legal backyard converted garage apartments that some families ran and ran like illegally but mm-hmm. with the city knowing and not really cracking down on them up until 2016 they became legal uh the city wants to expand that the city wants to see more people turning like their garages into apartments it seems correct and specifically there's actually a uh, a pilot program that's a, a five hundred fifty thousand dollar pilot project that was approved by the LA County uh, Board of Supervisors last year and that's moving forward with the intended purpose of uh, repurposing these a few of these accessory dwelling units which are commonly referred to as ADUs um, as housing for the formerly homeless who are ready to move into permanent living arrangements uh, the program allots something like $75,000 to build a new ADU or $50,000 to convert an existing unit, bringing it up to code, securing missing permits, you know, all of the things that weren't really done in the past. So that money actually comes in the form of a loan that's forgiven after 10 years if you provide housing for a homeless resident or family during those 10 years. Uh, the ADUs were originally considered, as you said, illegal in many parts of California up until 2016, but restrictions on their permitting and construction have been relaxed dramatically since then. Uh, the program only has, however, enough funding only to finance the construction of up to three new ADUs and uh, three conversions of existing units. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it, with with a county with a budget of $12 billion a year, they could only <laughs> pull out a half million dollars to build like six new-ish units, yeah, so like that's that seems a little low. Well, this is all as a, a as a pilot program to see whether or not this kind of a way of housing the homeless would actually be functional and whether or not it's viable yeah. and should be expanded. So. In this pilot program, they've apparently got four quote-unquote firm finalists for the uh, ADU construction and conversion plans, and the timeline for completing these units had originally been slotted at 18 months, but it's stretching because that's what always happens. Um, However, the first of these units could be available as early as this spring, but most of them are still in the design and planning process, and that means they're not going to be happening anytime before the summer or fall of next year. Um, Given that the current price projections for permanent supportive housing uh, in LA are currently pegged at around a half a million dollars per unit. This program, if it only costs between seventy-five dollars and $50,000 per unit, could be a very cost-effective and viable alternative for folks who are still needing some kind of some, of, some level of the services that are provided 
in permanent supportive housing, but don't require the typically intensive level of care that's associated with uh, full permanent supportive housing projects, like the kinds of things that we desperately need a bunch more of. So this is like a way of uh, providing kind of an in-between level of housing where there's still some level of uh, counseling and job placement and, uh, you know, worries about rehabilitation um, and, 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 and oversight for that, but it's not at the same level of intensiveness that you would get in a fully permanent supportive housing complex. Well, and it also seems like one where it's pretty good intentions, but the size mm-hmm. of the program is so small, it seems doomed to failure. Like, if it's going to take two years to get six of these units yeah. off the ground, like, that's that's way too long to wait. It's also one where the city and the county spent so much time and money enforcing these really stupid restrictions on ADUs mm-hmm. before, and, like, the, when they were passing these laws, part of it was, or when they were kind of bringing granny flats up into the legal realm, they spent a lot of money kicking people out of, like, semi-illegal conversions in Venice. They displaced dozens of people out of one building, uh, mainly because, like, the landlord was being a little sh- shady, the city decided not to like change the zoning or the co- or you know change the mm-hmm. the way that they felt that these buildings were like out of uh, compliance with codes to mm-hmm. allow people to stay there. They just kicked people out of their homes. Uh, so this all seems like a little too little too late. While the city could have been building units and making these um, you know these kind of like conversions palatable for the last decade, they instead were focused on like. Uh, enforcement and extracting fines from property owners, Mm -hmm. that meant that people weren't building these, or if they were, they were keeping them underground. I also kind of wonder, like, in the hardest-hit neighborhoods in L.A. that are gentrifying, are the folks that are moving into their newly flipped houses really going to want to build an ADU for somebody who's coming off the street? Um, You know, we're relying on the uh, goodwill of homeowners in L.A., which is not something I ever bank on. Um, (laughs) And I feel like that's a little bit of a risk. And it's also, like... Just sort of short-sighted, you know, like I, I like the idea of building uh, more units, but I like the idea of building like actual apartment buildings that can house dozens of families instead of like... Oh, agreed. Yeah, just one one building in the backyard that could house maybe two people. Like that's when we look at the scope of our housing crisis with 100,000 people living unhoused in L.A. City and L.A. County, this is like such a small drop in the bucket. Like I, I, I still like it, but it's like so tiny you're wondering, are you trying to help or are you guys just kind of like throwing something that you want to be like, oh, hey, like I also did this on my resume. It didn't really help anyone, but it looks good on a resume sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, my my interpretation is that this is a great idea, but the scope is too small and the sense of urgency is really just not there because if they really wanted to try to make it, uh, to prove that this pro- kind of an idea uh, and project could work, they really needed to make sure that these things are being built faster and approved and through the process and actually getting people moved in faster than what it's looking like they're going to be able to do here. Because I mean, this is, we're stretching now into two plus years instead of the 18 months that it was supposed to do. And or rather into in the two, uh, 18 months where it was supposed to be completed. So this is just stretching it out because then at what point in the future do they make the determination that yes this is a viable project now how do we scale it up how do we yeah. ramp this out so that we take you know 10,000 units and we make them into uh you know permanent supportive adjacent uh projects where people would be motivated to use these financial incentives relatively meager though they are as ways of uh you know basically 
we pay you money, you provide housing for 10 years for homeless folks uh, or previously homeless folks. And then after that 10 years is up, then they can just switch it to being some kind of a, you know, a typical ADU rental, which now that they would be legal. So and that also raises a bunch of questions, because like a lot of people don't own a home for 10 years straight. Like, and, and what happens if somebody gets the loan, does the conversion and then six years into it, decides to sell the house and move? Are they still on the hook for the loan? What about the people who bought the house? Do they now have to rent that unit to the person? in the back like there's so many levels of like private property law that enter into this that like suddenly make this seem so much more complicated oh from from what i understand of reading into this a little bit the uh the some of the things that have been causing these delays have been those exact kind of concerns, specifically relating to you know longer term uh, legality issues and zoning authority, and it's it's really just everything. It's like a good idea that just kind of didn't get fully baked before it got thrown out there, and it was too little with not enough emphasis behind it, and it's. It's hopeful, but at the same time, it's kind of disheartening because it's just like, yeah, guys, it's the same kind of a thing of what you see with like global warming. It's like, what are we doing about this to actually make a meaningful impact right now? And the answer is not that much. I think it comes back to, and we've been harping on this topic a lot, uh, as have a lot of like LA focus groups, that we need to reimagine how our neighborhoods look. Absolutely. Uh, And that's happening uh, just in the wrong way. You know, the planning (laughs) and land use stuff, like this sort of thing. It's reformatting our neighborhoods, but in a way that is harsh and and unwelcoming to the people who live there, uh, is not affordable for people who aren't making over six figures a year, and also is putting a lot of the planning in the hands of technocrats who are not thinking about what the actual human experience is going to be. And that's kind of problematic because in 10 years, we're going to look at a severely changed L.A. and it's probably not going to be the L.A. that we want. Like we, what we want is more investment in communities. What we want is more investment in actually like walkable, accessible neighborhoods instead yeah. of this focus on single family homes being able to maintain their monopoly over the city. Like 60% of our land is single family homes. Mm -hmm. Not everybody needs their own garden, folks. We can have community (laughs) gardens and we can have parks and we can have people living in an efficient way that like isn't going to kill us all. It might be a little bit late with that after the IPCC report, but we're we're quickly hurtling towards these breaking points Mm -hmm. and the folks doing the planning and making the future LA happen don't seem to be very in tune with uh, the folks who actually live in LA. And that's kind of what you get when you only have 15 city councilmen and five county board folks. Like, the people who run our city do not live in our city. They're a completely different level of oligarchic power above us. And until we fundamentally attack that power structure, we're going to be stuck with the same, like, 50% solution, 50% non-solution solutions that they keep coming up with. We're like, they fix two things, but they also break three things. (laughs) And you're like, well, that's just the way it goes. And that kind of a complaint about the, uh, and a very well-deserved complaint about the lack of involvement of the community in these plans for how to try to fix these problems really echoes exactly what we were talking about with SB 827 earlier this year. Yeah. So I'm, I am uh, cautiously optimistic about the potential futures for SB 827 Mark II or whatever the hell it is that uh, Scott Weiner is going to call it when it comes through. Because it sounds like he's at least talking to the right people before introducing the legislation this time and getting the input from the people who would be most affected by this and who are on the ground talking with the people who are feeling these displacement pressures, this gentrification pressure uh, around our city and around San Francisco and all up and down the state because these are some very serious problems that need to be addressed in a fully inclusive and democratic process rather than just being a top-down technocratic solution that really just 
doesn't see what it is that's going to be happening. I mean, the fact that Wiener saw SB-827 as a way of helping to alleviate displacement pressure without realizing that by opening up uh, development around metro stations and bus lines without really having any kind of an inclusionary requirement at the outset is just a gigantic red flag for anybody who's concerned about displacement because as soon as somebody gets kicked out of one home and they're building a giant condominium tower there and it's driving up property values around the neighborhood, that means rents are going to go up and that means displacement is going to happen. And that's exactly how you get the gentrification problem that we see all over this city. And so I'm really hopeful that the involvement with community groups like ACT LA and SAGE and ACE are going to help make sure that any new uh, rezoning programs that are done at the state level actually take those things into consideration at the outset. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the number one thing that you can do is you can vote yes on Prop 10. Absolutely. And then the second solution that we need is we need our own gritty. Unfortunately, none of our teams <laughs> have good mascots to begin with. Like, I can't even, I think the Rams have, like, a guy who wears, like, a dumb Rams outfit. But, uh-huh. like, that's the only real mascot that L.A.'s got right now. Like, we don't have a clip. We don't have a lakey. We we need an Antifa mascot here for our sports teams. <laughs> and that's really how we dig ourselves <laughs> the out USC of The USC Trojans are not, not going to be able to provide that, are they? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't know. The Bulldog, like, the Bulldog has, he's got promise. Maybe we can radicalize the Bulldog. Who knows? I mean, there's been, like, 20 of them, but, like, one of them's got to be a commie. But anyways, (laughs) uh, I think that's going to wrap us on uh, this fairly intense, like, land use and planning and housing episode. Yeah, this Uh, is a big one. Anything to add? No, I think we're done. All right, sweet. 